I have to share with you that uh, this teaching series on the second coming, as I've been studying these chapters, has really been encouraging to me to just strengthen my faith. Because I don't think God wants us to live in fear. And one of the things that's uh, it'll become a concern of mine, a burden of mine for so many of God's people in recent years is that when you, when you look at all that's happening in the culture, all the news and so on, it's, it's easy to become afraid. It's easy to become angry and to start living that way, to live in fear. And I don't think God wants us to live that way. He wants us to be people of faith, not fear. And as I've been studying and teaching, um, he, he's, he's grown me in that area. And it's my prayer for you. He's doing the same for you. I mean, I want you to know what the Bible teaches. But just knowing it isn't enough. I want, you, I want more than that for you. I want it to strengthen your faith because knowing God's Word, doesn't. That, that's not where it stops. It's intended to, to change us, to develop us, to strengthen us. And, and so I'm praying that today and, uh, and, and, and this, just, this whole teaching, because God says, here's what's going to happen, that, that you stop being intimidated that you're not intimidated, that you're, you're not afraid, but you live with hope and confidence and faith and you hold your head up and you live that way. So that's, that's what I'm uh, praying is your takeaway. That's my takeaway. I hope that's yours in these days as well. Go ahead and be opening your Bible, please, to the book of 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. And I'm going to tell you up front, uh, I only got through half of my notes in the first two services. So, no, I'm not keeping you till 1245. Uh, we'll just stop where we did in the other two services and pick it up next Sunday, okay? Um, just by way of review, when we started this series, you know, we're looking at these four chapters in First and Second Thessalonians that talk about Jesus coming back. And in the first sermon from First Thessalonians chapter 4, we discovered that Jesus' return will not be a secret. It's not a sneak attack. It's loud. He will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel. Everybody is going to know it. It's going to be public. It's going to be visible. It's going to be loud. You cannot miss it. You will not be mistaken. I mean, you'll know it when it happens. And he's going to raise everyone from the dead. Those, those of us who are believers will receive that glorified eternal body that is prepared for heaven that will never be sick, never die, and so on. And uh, we'll be, meet Jesus in the air and be with him forever. Praise God. That, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now the second message from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 teaches that um, unbelievers, those who are not followers of Christ, are going to be radically surprised when Jesus comes back. Caught off guard. In fact, they are going to be in absolute shock. And for them, it will be there of, of, of pain. But for us, and he said in that chapter, we don't live in the dark so that it should not take us as a thief. We're not, you know, we, we don't know when he's coming, but we know he's coming, so we're not surprised. We're not, we're not shocked. For us, it's a day of great blessing. Now, last Sunday, we looked in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. And he teaches there that when Jesus comes back, for those who are oppressors of God's people, those we talked about how the culture and some people put pressure on God's people. For them, on that day, he's going to repay them with retribution for what they have done to his people. And that those who are not followers of Christ are going to be banished for eternity from the presence of Jesus, from the presence of God, from heaven itself. 
But for those of us who are Jesus followers, it's going to be a day of relief as that, that pressure is released. The, the, the persecution, the challenges, the hardship is all released. It's, and, and so it's a day of refreshment and renewal for us, if you will. And we will bask in Jesus' glory. What a day that's going to be. It's why I love us singing about uh, these songs. Now, to set the table for what we're going to talk about in 2 Thessalonians 2, um, and, and some of this is going to be new to some of you and maybe even a surprise for some of you. Um, following the first sermon several weeks ago, after one of the services, a man came up to me. He's very nice, very nice. And he, 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 he said to me, essentially, he said, Pastor, based on the words you were using to describe the events in 1 Thessalonians 4 about Jesus coming back with the shout and the resurrection and all that, based on the words and how you were describing that, I take it, that you do not believe in a rapture of the church that is followed immediately by seven years of tribulation. And I said to him, that's correct, I don't. And he thanked me for answering his question. So today, and it got really quiet in here all of a sudden. Today we're going to talk about that. Finish it next Sunday. Because as I said, I want you to understand Scripture, but more than that, I want your faith However you understand the second coming, I want your faith to be strong, and I want, I want you to not live intimidated by this culture. I want you to live as a bold witness for Jesus Christ, knowing how things end and that we win. So let's begin 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me see your copy of God's Word written, uh, electronic, whatever. Hold it up. Hold it up. Thank you for bringing God's Word with you to worship. Always uh, do that because we study His Word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's begin at verse 1. Now remember, chapter 2 is a continuation of chapter 1. The chapter divisions and verses in your Bible are man-added. They aren't part of the original Bible, okay? We put those in there to help us find our place real quickly. That's good. The downside of that is sometimes we think, a chapter division means there's a new thought. That's not true. This is one letter that Paul wrote. We put these divisions in here to help us open it and find it quickly. Does that make sense? So chapter 2 is continuing what he was teaching in chapter 1, which we looked at last Sunday. So chapter 2, verse 1. And remember, chapter 1 last week, I think is the most graphic depiction in the Bible for what happens to those who are not followers of Jesus when Jesus comes back. I mean, it is graphic language that he will pay, repay with retribution. I mean, it's, 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 it's forceful. It's going to be a horrible day for those who are not followers of Christ. And he ended by saying, we're going to bask in his glory, and I want your faith to be strong at the end of chapter 1. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, now we request, Paul says, he and his missionary team, we're, we're, we're requesting of you, Thessalonians, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, and our gathering together to him, what we talked about in the first sermon, being caught up in the air and being with Jesus forever, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now let's stop there for a minute. This was a new church in Thessalonica that Paul had started 
on his second missionary journey. These were new Christians. And after starting that church, he traveled on. And near the end of his second journey, he writes these two letters back to that church to answer questions and deal with the issues he heard they were having. And apparently, based on verse 2, someone had been teaching, someone had written a letter claiming to be Paul, but it was a, a false letter. And the result was that some of these young Christians in that new church thought, wow, Jesus came back and we missed it. And he says, I don't want you to be disturbed. You haven't missed it. He goes on in verse 3 and following. He says, you haven't missed it. In fact, you can't miss it because when he comes back, everybody knows it. You may be saved, you may be lost, but you're going to know it. No, you haven't missed it because it hasn't happened yet. Now, starting at verse 3, he continues. <clears throat> Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come. What will not come? The day of the Lord at the end of verse 2. The coming of Jesus in verse 1. The day of the Lord, the second coming, our resurrection, being with Christ. He said, listen, that day, that day, don't be deceived. That day will not come unless two things happen. There are two things that are going to happen immediately, immediately before Jesus comes back. One is the apostasy comes first. Your Bible may translate it, the rebellion or the falling away comes first. And then the second thing is the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. I think the King James translates that son of uh, perdition. So this apostasy comes first and then the man of lawlessness. Those two things happen immediately preceding the coming of Jesus. He goes on in verse 4 to say about this man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, all religions, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? He says, when I was with you, I taught you some of this stuff, don't you? Hey, by the way. When, when, when someone teaches you something, let me ask you, do you always get everything that is taught the first time you heard it taught? And let me ask you another question. Do you always remember everything you're taught? Well, it was the same then as today. So he says, listen, now, I want to remind you, I taught you some of this, but let's go back over it again. That's what he's doing here. Verse, verse 6 and you know what restrains him, talking about the man of lawlessness, so that in his time, at the appointed time, the appropriate time, the right time, the full time, he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we're going to focus on that some this morning, and we'll pick up in that general area and finish uh, next week. So he said, you haven't missed it. Two things have to happen. The, the apostasy, that falling away, and the man of lawlessness. And I'm going to talk about those. But before I do that, I want to I want to discuss a couple of things. And one, I want to let's go to the next slide, guys, because I want to walk you all through the uh, the four different approaches, the four different understandings, the views, philosophies, interpretive methods. Next slide, there we go. About eschatology, which is the study of last things, the study of in things. And and I'm going to do my absolute best not to get too deep in the weeds here because I could. We could spend an hour on this. So let me just give you a high level overview. You see those words, all of them having millennialism or millennial in it. Millennial means 1000. 
comes from one verse in the book of Revelation that talks about a thousand years. And by the way, there's only one verse in the Bible that talks about it. Just one. That one verse in Revelation. And uh, so the millennial, a thousand. So one of the keys is how do you understand that thousand years? Is that a literal 1,000 year rule upon the earth or is it something else? And when does Jesus come back in relation to that? So these are the four perspectives. Ah, millennialism. Ah, the prefix, no, negative, a negation, not. So no, what, what amillennialism is, there is no literal 1,000 year reign upon the earth. We're going through history. Things intensify, man of lawlessness and so on. It all intensifies, and Jesus comes back, and when he does, the resurrection of all the dead, judgment, heaven, hell. And the millennium is not talking about a 1,000 literal year rule upon the earth, but rather is a symbolic way in Revelation of talking about the rule of Christ among his people during what we think of as the church age between the two comings, and we'll say more about that in a minute. So it's, it's, it's just referring to the now, the rule of Jesus in our lives now. Premillennialism, pre, the prefix pre, preceding, before, meaning that we're going through time, things intensify, man of lawlessness, and immediately before the millennium, Jesus comes back, resurrection, judgment, all that, and then there is a literal thousand-year rule upon the earth. Today, that's often referred to as historic premillennialism. Post-millennialism, Jesus comes back after a, a millennium. Nobody believes that anymore. World War I, World War II destroyed that, so we won't worry about it. Dispensationalism, or the rapture, is very popular among many conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians today. Dispensationalism is a version of premillennialism. Dispensationalism, and, and, and I'm summarizing because there are slight variations of all these, but is the, is the idea that we're going through history and all of a sudden, without anybody knowing it, Jesus', Jesus second coming is sort of divided into two comings. And there's this secret one where, where God's people, the church, are all raptured out of the world. If you watch those movies, you saw that depicted, just all raptured out of the world. There's a literal seven-year tribulation. And then the second coming is complete. Jesus comes back, and then there's a literal thousand years, and then there's heaven and, and hell. So that's the four views that are represented in, in, in Christianity today. And let me say, in conservative Christianity, in evangelical Christianity, you'll find, well, you won't find postmillennialism anymore, but you'll find the other three among very strong Bible-believing conservative evangelical Christians uh, today. Now, a couple more things about dispensationalism and the rapture. Now, we, we, we've been studying these chapters in context, not just poking a verse out of context. Because remember, one of the principles of sound biblical interpretation is context. So in our Bible reading plan and our D groups and all of that, what do we do? We read chapter after chapter. And I've had so many people say to me, Pastor, because we're going chapter after chapter and we're reading it in context, I'm seeing things in the Bible I've never seen before. Because so much of our devotional materials and Bible reading plans, we just take a topic and we pick a verse from here and a verse from there and a verse from over here. And we kind of take them out of context. And it's easy to get some inaccurate ideas when you do that because you're not reading the verse in the context in which it occurs. That's the reason we do chapter by chapter so we can be more sound as we understand Scripture. Um, and uh, so 
I say that to say that when we, we've been reading First and Second Thessalonians, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, there's no rapture in these four chapters. You have to already have that in your mind and come and force it on the text because it's nowhere in these texts. When you read the Gospels, Every time Jesus talked about the second coming, he talked about the second coming. He's going to come back. There's a general resurrection of all the dead, judgment of the lost, judgment of the saved, heaven and hell, and that's it. Jesus never talked about two comings. You won't find it anywhere in the Gospels. In fact, I can show you a verse where Jesus said that he will come back immediately after the tribulation of those days. Here's another thing. In all the writings of church history, go back and read the fathers of the, of the Christian church in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries. There is no record of anyone teaching, preaching, writing about a pre-tribulation rapture until the 1800s. None. That's informative. Now, if you Google, and then, isn't that what we did today? You want to know something? What do you, let, let me get my phone out and we'll, Google, we'll, we'll, we'll check Google. What's Google got to say? Then you read Wikipedia. Oh, mercy, don't read Wikipedia. <laughs> you Google it. And you will find a few authors who will briefly quote three or four church fathers from centuries ago and say see they they believed in the rapture but when you go back and you actually read what they wrote in its entirety you know how our media and politicians and everybody else anymore takes something they just take a snippet of what somebody said to make it say what they wanted to say but when you go back and you read those documents there's not a one of them that taught a rapture none of them We can tell you from history when it was first taught and how it became popular. It started in the mid-1800s. We can tell you the, the preachers and commentators who started making it popular in America, the, the, the movement. We, 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 can, we can track it all. And one of the things that helped it become popular in America is back in the early years of the last century, the early 1900s, among people like me and you, conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical people, do you know what the number one selling Bible was? Well, yeah, it was the King James translation because that's the only one we had. But it was by C.I. Schofield, the Schofield Reference Bible. When I was ordained, I was given a Schofield Bible. I still have it. I had it rebound about a year ago because it was falling apart. Any, any of you own a Schofield Bible? About three of you. The previous service, the traditional service, a whole bunch of them had it. Because for the first half of the last century, the best-selling Bible among people like us was the Schofield Reference Bible, King James Schofield. Why? Schofield was the first one to put footnotes, references, study notes in the Bible. And in his notes, he had dispensationalism. He had rapture, and that helped to become popular among people like us. By the way, don't have time to go into this, but he also had in Genesis the gap theory. So what's that? Don't worry about it. But that's how it became popular. Now, most scholars, conservative scholars, 
are either amillennialists or premillennialists. They're not dispensationalists. There are some who are dispensationals, but not many. Most are either a or pre. Now, some of our popular preachers, and, and, and so you go back to the 70s when I was young, and any of y'all, any of you close to my age, you remember reading back in the 70s, The Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsay? Remember that book? And then LaHaye and, and what's all of his movies and books? Uh, help me, what's, what are they called? Left Behind. So it's, it's, that's, that's taken over culture. But that doesn't mean it's always been that way because historically, that's not where the church was. So I just need you to know. Now, now, we're going to get to teaching here in a minute from Thessalonians and really dive into it next week, but I'm, I'm laying the foundation. I need you in full transparency to know my journey. My journey. I was not raised as a Christian, not raised in church. I became a believer when I was a teenager. And, and all the teaching I heard in those early years was dispensationalism, pre-tribulation rapture. That's all I knew. I, in fact, I have in my study in a, in a filing cabinet every sermon I've ever preached, my notes, and I, I have a couple of sermons I preached on the rapture back in those days when I first started preaching as a teenager. I go to college and I'm preparing for ministry, and I'm studying, I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading the Bible, and all these questions started developing in my mind because I, as I was reading the Scripture, I didn't see what I had been taught. In fact, I saw just the opposite. And so I'm struggling. And I remember, I went to one of our Baptist colleges in Kentucky, and there were about 200 young men preparing for ministry at that college. And one, one evening, three of us in my car drove about two hours up to Lexington, Kentucky to a church that was having a conference on the second coming. And the speaker was one who taught what I'd always heard, rapture, tribulation, all that. I actually bought two of his books, still have them in my library. I have a pretty extensive library on this subject. And after, after the conference, I went up and I was talking to him one-on-one and... Um, I asked him, can you point me to some verses or even just a verse in the Bible? Doesn't have to use the word rapture, but can you point me to a verse that very clearly teaches that there is a rapture of the church? And I never will forget his answer. He said there isn't one, but it's implied in a few places. Now remember, I've been studying Scripture vociferously, and I and, and 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 I can take you to Matthew, where Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days will appear the coming of the Son of Man. That's clear. And one of the hermeneutics, one of the principles of hermeneutics of of Bible interpretation is the clear always trumps the obscure. You don't ever interpret what is obvious and clearly stated by what is not quite so clear. That's just a principle of sound interpretation. And when he said that, I thought, wow, that's not helping me. I continued to study. And by the time I graduated college, I was convinced that the New Testament does not teach pre-tribulation rapture. For years... I was in the camp of what up here is premillennialism that we're going along and 
there's intensification of all this stuff and there's the man of lawlessness and it gets worse and Jesus comes, resurrection, judgment, and then a thousand year reign. But I, I, I continue to struggle because I, I'm, I'm being as honest with you as I know how to be. The idea of ruling on the earth for a thousand years and then armies at the end of that fighting made no sense to me. I'd rather just go on to heaven. And, and, and the whole concept was based on just one verse, which I had a hard time lining up with all these other verses. And so a little over 20 years ago, I became convinced that amillennialism is what the New Testament actually teaches. That we're going through life and the opposition to God intensifies and intensifies ultimately with, with this apostasy, man of lawlessness, which we'll talk about a little bit this morning and more next week. Uh, and then Jesus comes, resurrection, judgment, heaven, hell, new heaven, new or all that, and, and, and that's it. Now, let me say this, and we'll get to Thessalonians. I don't have a problem with anybody who wants to believe differently on this subject. I mean, the Baptist faith and message doesn't... You love Jesus, you love Jesus. It's okay. But I need you to understand that I'm where I am because I love God's Word and I have studied it as hard as I know how to know what He says. And read verse after verse, chapter after chapter. And I'm convinced, I have a biblical conviction on this subject. So I just need you to know that. Now, back to Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Y'all got up this morning, ate your breakfast, put your clothes on, came to church and said, I knew the pastor was going to talk about something different, didn't you? You just knew it. All right. Verse 3, this apostasy, a man of lawlessness. What's he talking about? Well, let's start. Apostasy, rebellion, uh, falling away. That word originally in the Greek meant a political rebellion. A political rebellion. So what he's talking about is this rebellion against Jesus, this rebellion against Jesus' nature and identity as clearly taught in Scripture. In other words, what Jesus claims about himself, what the Father said about Jesus, what what uh, the Bible says about Jesus and, and, and what Jesus teaches, what the New Testament teaches and ethics and morality, especially in today's culture, the area of sexual morality, that was also the issue in the first century as well. There, there, there's going to be, he says, this, this rebellion, if you will, against the truth of what Scripture says about the personhood, about the nature of who Jesus is and what Jesus really teaches about sin about ethics, about judgment, a rebellion. And boy, that exists in our culture, doesn't it? That's connected to men of lawlessness. Now think about the word lawlessness means what? Without law, a rebellion against the law. Not against man's law, but against God's law. Not against man's truth, but against God's truth. And you, you think about all the debates today when it comes to the LBGTQ plus community and everything else. There's this rebellion against what God has said is morally holy and unholy. Scripture says that's what it's going to be like. Now, let me help you a little bit more. 
And then after this, we're going to stop here in just a moment and continue next week. Um, turn over to the book of First John. You're there in Thessalonians, going through Timothy and and uh, and so on, and Hebrews and and uh, Peter, and, and get over to First John. Jesus' disciple John, when talking about the man of lawlessness, did not use that phrase. He called him the Antichrist. The word Antichrist is only found in First and Second John. It's not found in Revelation. Only in First and Second John. It's John's way of describing this man of lawlessness. Jesus did not use man of lawlessness or antichrist in his teaching. Jesus talked about there would be many false teachers. Many people falsely claiming to be him. It's all talking about the same stuff. Just using different phrases. So John... In 1 John chapter, chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Now, what is the verb tense there? Talk to me. What? Present tense. Children, it what? Present tense. In John's day, 2,000 years ago, is the last hour. See, every time we read the Bible, we come across the last, you know, the last days, the last hours. We automatically assume it's talking about a few days, a few months, or a few years immediately before Jesus comes back. But that's not what it's saying. You remember in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came? And Peter stood up and he preached and thousands were saved and baptized and they were filled with the Spirit. They were speaking in tongues and so on. And the crowd said, they're drunk. They're crazy. They're drunk. Remember that? Peter stood up and preached. And he said, they're not drunk the way you suppose. He said, here's what's happened. And he quoted, listen, he quoted the Old Testament prophet Joel. You can read it yourself in the book of Joel. He quoted him. He said, this is what Joel said, that in the last days, in the last days, God will do two things. God will pour out his spirit on mankind and your sons and your daughters will see visions and dream dreams and they will prophesy. Prior to the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came and went, came and went. But at Pentecost, he came and stayed. And when you become a believer, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life as he converts you to Jesus Christ and transforms you, and he's in you thereon. That started at Pentecost. And so Joel says, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on mankind. And then he said, the moon will turn to blood, the sun will be darkened, there's all these catastrophic events in the universe. Well, Joel, I mean, I, what, what Peter said was, he said, what you are seeing today, this is 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, what you are seeing today is what Joel prophesied would happen in the last days. The first part of Joel's prophecy about pouring out the Spirit happened at Pentecost. The second part, the moon turning to blood, sun being darkened, are these events that are associated with the second coming of Jesus and the transformation of the universe that all happens at the second coming. What is Joel teaching us? What is Peter saying in Acts? That the last days, or as John here calls it, the last hours, is that entire time period between the two comings of Jesus. And you're not going to understand these verses if you don't get that. That's the reason John said it is the last hours. 
We're living in the last days. We can honestly say that. Your great-grandparents could honestly say they were living in the last days because the entire time period between the coming of the Holy Spirit at the first coming of Jesus and Jesus' return, that is the last days. And that's what all millennials would say is the millennium. It's these last days. It's this time period between that will be culminated in the second coming of Jesus. Now let's go on in verse 18. And I'm not going to get as forward with you all as I did the first, second service, and I didn't get as forward with them as I did the first service. Verse 18, he said, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, future, even now many Antichrists have appeared. Already here. From this we know that it is the last hour. Yes, the men of lawlessness think of him as the epitome of this rebellion against God, but there are going to be others all along the way doing the same thing. He's just the epitome of it. Drop down to verse 22. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, Christos, the anointed one, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. This gets at the very identity, the very nature of who Jesus is. The liar is the one who denies what Jesus claimed about himself. This, he says in verse 22, is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. It's not, it's not that they say there's no God. It's that they say that, that God's not who he claimed to be. Jesus is not who he said he was. He's this. And they create a Jesus they like. That happens all the time in our culture. Well, my Jesus, you ever heard that? Going down to chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 3. He said, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world, already at work. I read the wrong verse, didn't, or did I? I got it right. Okay, I'm having cataract surgery, so I'm not sure what I'm reading sometimes. Yeah, I got it, didn't I? So there's this Antichrist, this man of lawlessness, this epitome that's coming, but examples of that already here the same system it just gets intensified at the coming of Christ one more verse and then we're back to Thessalonians second second John chapter 1 verse 7 second John chapter 1 verse 7 he said for many deceivers have gone out into the world and Jesus talked about a lot of false teachers deceivers going out into the world those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Jesus not coming in the flesh. You see, in the first few centuries of the church, there was this heresy the church was always battling. And it grew out of Greek culture, Greek philosophy. Doesn't make sense to us, but it was a big deal to them. And it's the idea that in Greek philosophy, the flesh, your human body, was just horrible. Only the soul was good. And there's no way the Son of God could really inhabit a body of flesh because that would be despicable. And so 
You thought he had a body, but it was imaginary. He really didn't. And when he died on the cross, he really didn't die. Now, that doesn't make any sense to us, but in their culture, it was a big deal. It's Gnosticism. The church was battling that all the time. And that's what John's referring to here. But over the years, century after century, different cultures, different cultures, who Jesus is gets corrupted because one culture doesn't like this, another culture doesn't like something else. And so they create a Jesus that agrees with their culture, with their sensibilities, like we talked about last Sunday. And today, wow, that's America today. Especially when it comes to sexual ethics. I don't like who the Bible says Jesus really is and what, he really, what, what the Bible really teaches about this. So I'm going to modify it, adjust it, change it. Keep what I like and reject what I don't like. It's not new. For us, it's somewhat new, intensifying, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse leading up to the man of lawlessness, this apostasy and Jesus coming. Now, here's, here's the, I'm, I'm getting to wrap this up so we can get home before lunch is cold. This rebellion, while it will take on secular aspects, this rebellion always originates. It's Genesis. It's Genesis. It always starts with religious people. It always starts with some very corrupt, very, very liberal, very loose approach to Christianity. Look at what's going on with many of the mainline denominations today. The amount of lawlessness, this all originates usually within philosophy and theology that is religious based that is connected to the church even at times and it modifies who he who jesus really is and jesus true teachings on ethics so that the culture the secular culture at large says yeah i like that and eventually gets the culture and politicians even laws and Regulations developed by bureaucrats and economic forces to push and promote this corrupt religion that seeks to speak as God while putting pressure on those of us who believe what God has always taught in Scripture. And you think about America today and you think about the issues when it comes to the LBGTQ community and how regulations, even more than law, but law and regulation is, are used to create economic pressure on Christian business people today to deny the historic, orthodox, biblical faith. Don't you see that happening today in America? And what the Bible is saying, yes, that's what's going to happen. And you have all these antichrists. You have 
the mystery of the spirit of lawlessness already at work, all moving forward toward the second coming. And the epitome of that means that it's going to intensify under certain leaders, and one in particular, just before Jesus comes back. And we'll pick up with that next week. So how do I wrap this up in mid-sermon for you? Yeah, it's 12.04, I got to quit. Do you know what this ultimately comes down to? You, you are either living in rebellion or fear or faith. You are either living in rebellion to who Jesus really is. Rebellion against what Jesus really says about what is holy and what is right and how to be saved. and how to, You're either living in rebellion instead of submission to his lordship. Rebellion instead of submission to his authority. Rebellion instead of submission to his truth. And there are some of you in this room, you've, you're not angry at Jesus, but you're in rebellion because you won't submit. When we sing this song in a moment and pastors are here at the altar, I'm asking you to stop rebelling and to submit, to come to one of these pastors and say today, I'm surrendering to Jesus. I want to be saved, but I, I want to live for Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. I'm surrendering to Jesus. You come to Jesus and stop rebelling. There are some of you who are believers you're not walking by faith you're walking by fear you sit in front of your TV two three hours a night and watch cable news and you're mad and angry and scared to death God doesn't want you living that way I want you in God's word so your faith is built up and you go out into the workplace and you go out into the community and you go to school and you're confident that you know Christ and you, you know what's going on and you know how it's going in and you share the gospel and you're not afraid stop living in fear stop being intimidated it's a horrible way to live it's an unhappy way to live Live in the joy of the Lord. Because no matter how, how bad anything ever gets, guess what? Jesus is going to come back and with the breath of his mouth, the spoken word, put an end to all the sin, all the evil, all the pressure. So why am I going to live in fear? So don't live in rebellion. Come to Jesus. Don't live in fear. Don't, don't, don't live that way. Walk with him. Get into his word.